0: As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fires was flowing out, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words, the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of all of their authority, but they were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: I don't know if you're like me or not, but I have some haunting uh, memories from my childhood of a plate just full of vegetables, and I have to sit there until it's gone. I have a slight memory of a daycare that I went to where we had to eat lima beans, and they would make us eat all the lima beans. (laughs) And some of us uh, who were more, shall I say, creative, or clandestine than others, would scoop the lima beans up and put them in our pockets. And then we'd ask to go to the bathroom and just deposit the lima beans into the toilet. And certainly we ate all of them. Uh, The lengths that we will go to, that we can get creative about when we feel the need to avoid doing the hard stuff. Today, if I'm really honest with you, I feel like I have to eat my vegetables we have been in this series on Daniel and this is the last uh, sermon seri- uh, sorry the last sermon in that series. We've done all the fun stuff, all the kind of easy good stuff if you will, where we talked about Daniel in the lions den, we talked about them bowing down in the fiery furnace. We've talked about this uh, dream that Daniel has and how he also, you know, differentiates himself with his diet. All that stuff is well and good. It's the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. It's the back half of Daniel that's really, really hard to talk about for reasons we're going to get into today. The first one is, it's a a genre of scripture called um, apocalyptic, uh, which there's a whole lot kind of bound up in that word. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word apocalypse, I think of, like, the book of Revelation. And I remember being in high school and reading the book of Revelation, and I was like, oh my goodness, what is this, like, all about? This is, you know, this is insane. And I thought it was about maybe the end of days or the end of times. And eventually I came to this realization that that's not really what uh, apocalypse means. It's not really the point of apocalyptic literature. So when we read the first half of the book of Daniel, it reads as traditional storytelling. There's people, there's places, there's plots with their rising actions, some sort of climactic thing that happens, and then, you know, falling action and some sort of resolution. But the second half of Daniel is just a weird animal, pardon the pun. It's, uh, It's full of nonsense and crazy talk and things that are really difficult to understand, uh, there's these stories of beasts coming up out of the water. There's some sort of figure like a son of man coming from above. There's rams and there's goats. There's weird nonsensical numbers, the idea of like 77s. There's more visions and stories of Babylonia and Persia and the Medes. There's strange talk of the end of days with a, a mention of the exact number of days that the faithful should remain. And Daniel's response to all this is like, I was troubled. I didn't know what to do. It scared me. He's not even told, like, other prophets to go and proclaim it. Like, when we did the series on Jonah a while ago, Jonah is told by God to go to Nineveh and proclaim. But the angel delivers God's word to Daniel and told to, like, write it in a scroll and seal it up. And Daniel's like, what do you want me to do with that nightmare fuel? <laughs> like keep it in my mind? Uh, do I get to tell anybody about this? Do I get to go to therapy? Do I, what do I do? And God's like, just seal it up. You'll know when. And so much like Daniel, who's probably troubled with all this stuff, I mean, so am I. What in the world am I supposed to do with the back half of Daniel? As a, as a preacher, as a pastor, what am I supposed to say about it? As a, as a believer, as someone who follows Jesus, how am I supposed to live that out? What's it, what's it do for me? Does it, is there anything? Can I apply it at all? Or is it locked in some faraway time and place to a different people? Or is it locked in some faraway time and place to a future people? Or does Daniel matter today, here, and now in our life? So as I wrestle with some of those questions, as I wrestle with the back half of Daniel... I am, uh, i got three rules. Josh's three rules for reading apocalyptic literature. This should be fun. The first one is it's filled with metaphors and similes. And so everything means something else. Uh, this is true of any apocalyptic literature that you read, whether it's Daniel or Revelation. Everything means something else. It's filled with metaphors and similes. I have a a cousin who I was very, very, very good friends with when we were little uh, boys. We would play Legos together. uh, And then time and distance, you know, uh, we went our different ways in life, and recently I had the time to sort of reconnect with him. His name's Seth, and he's a, he's an artist, and I mean that in the most legitimate way uh, possible. He's actually paid for his art, which is crazy that artists get paid, and he is amazing. He's a sculptor. Um, you can uh, google him and find his work, uh, and he's got stuff in Glasgow, uh, Scotland, and he's got stuff in um, in the Children's Hospital in Dallas. He did the main sculpture in the lobby there, and I think he's on faculty at UT um last i uh, heard and he is um he maintains a studio and he he and i had an opportunity to go to an art show in Houston once and i'm i'm not an artist i dabble in like painting stuff and i'm i took an art appreciation class in college so you know i'm kind of know my stuff and so we were going through uh this curated art exhibit and i was with like literally a world renowned artist And we're walking around and he's, you know, showing me these different exhibits and I'm asking him like, well, what is that? And then he asks me, well, what do you see? Or do you notice this? And apocalyptic literature is really a lot of the same features are in it. There's filled with metaphor and simile and everything means something else. And it's so much bigger than just that literal representation on the page. The second rule for reading apocalyptic literature that I have is the metaphor is encapsulated in time, and yet it reaches past its origin. Much like when you see art, um, classical art, when you witness the sculpture of David, or when you see the painting of Venus, it's profound and beautiful, and it transcends when it was done, and it means something still today. Apocalyptic literature is a lot like that. Let me give you an example. In chapter 7, we heard uh, Glenda read about the Son of Man coming like, um, from the clouds. And this is this um, kind of allusion to someone who will come and deliver God's people from the plight. Well, what is the plight? It's all those verses that we skipped on the first half of chapter 7 because it's confusing. It's really difficult to talk about. I'll summarize. There's four beasts. And there's, uh, the first three are described and defined and interpreted, and it's the last beast that's not. And people say, well, who's the fourth beast? Is it Rome? Is it Greece? Is it America? Is it Russia? Is it the Chinese? Is it the Japanese? Is it who? Who is it? What is it? I would say probably it probably depends on what season of human history you're in and how you read that passage. Is it some yet-to-be-formed dystopian society that we don't know about? It is obscured, and that's the whole entire purpose of apocalyptic literature. It's supposed to be a little hazy as we read it. So my third rule for reading apocalyptic literature is that you need to slow your roll <laughs> when you read The Sucker. You've got to slow down. Not everything is as it appears to be, and when you read the genre, you have to slow down your reading. I think about the Left Behind series that was really big in the early 2000s and how to this day, there are people who read the Left Behind series and say, that is what's going to happen in the end of days. To which I reply, you should probably slow your roll, read the actual source and realize there's a lot of metaphor and simile in there. And so this all leaves me with just two questions for today. Two questions. One, what in the world is happening here in this text? And second, what does it mean for us Today. So as we look at chapter 7, Daniel has a vision. It's with, in the reign of King Belshazzar, who um, is already dead. And so this isn't like concurrent with chapter 6. It's like these stories in these chapters have been spliced together to tell some sort of whole narrative about Daniel's understanding of God's ultimate power and control. The sea in the story, it represents the chaos. It always has. When you read the book of Genesis, there's um, water in the beginning, and chaos hovers uh, in the deep, and God is over the chaos. And a lot of the ancient Near East creation myths, uh, they also deal with water and chaos. The beasts, as I've already said, they represent these kingdoms that are um, temporal. They're earthly. They come and they go. And then there's this ancient of days who comes from the clouds. The reason why we chose that passage to read in particular is because this is the passage that Jesus quotes in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus says that there's one like a a son of man coming in the clouds. Daniel is troubled at the end of this, and he writes it all down. And so, what in the world does this mean for us today? Well, I only have a few more minutes, and I don't want to bore you to death. So I have just a couple thoughts on what it means for us today. First, as I apply my sort of general rules and thinking about this passage, I think it is about what has happened and about what will happen and about what continues to happen again and again and again. I think there will always be kingdoms, democracies, fascists, governments that oppose what our God stands for. There will always be capitalists, socialists, Republicans, Democrats, everyone in between on all sides of the aisle who oppose what our God stands for. They see people as a means to achieving national greatness as opposed to recognizing that people are made in the image of God and that you cannot use people to line your pockets. There will always be strife and tension, no matter how hard you try to push for what you perceive as morally good legislation, because God's kingdom is here, breaking in now, and it's not yet, and coming soon. Our kingdom is not of this world. We worship a God who is making all things new, a kingdom that does not build itself up just to destroy others, but a kingdom... That welcomes all, heals all, and embraces all. As we heard earlier in the baptism, it's a kingdom that's for all ages, nations, and races. And the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is the one who rules it, not any of us. And thank God for that, that it's ruled by someone ancient of days who is all good, all kind all-knowing, all-powerful, whose name is love, mercy, compassion. This is the God who will replace all the beasts talked about in the Bible, who shows us a still more excellent way to live. The rub that you and I have is sometimes we don't have the courage to believe it and to live it out, because God invites us to be co-creators of this kingdom here and now. To be people of faith, hope, and love, and show people a still more excellent way, as the Apostle Paul says. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.